Hey, if you have a Bible, we're in Titus. Uh, we're starting a new book study today for the next eight weeks. <clears throat> if I actually start with a confession, because I think confession is good for the soul, it has been said of me that I'm a little bit cynical. I, I tell my wife it's really wisdom, but <laughs> she still accuses me. And here's my thing. I, I think most people are a little bit like that, and I'm going to give you a test. I'm going to test. When, you, when I bring up the subject of big C church in our world. Don't say anything. But what does your gut tell you? Struggling a little bit? Like maybe we've wandered from doctrines, maybe that God has established for the church. Maybe there's a leadership crisis. Uh, we're into that celebrity thing like crazy. That's not good. Um, maybe we're not about the mission of God to make disciples. Maybe it's really about entertainment and consumerism. Maybe the church has a couple things. Now, I'm not being cynical. I think, I think it's wisdom. Um, if you feel that way at all, then uh, you need to listen up for the next eight weeks, specifically to this text in, in Titus. Because in this letter to a very young preacher named Titus, Paul is assigning a very, very difficult task. And uh, the task is, is fairly significant to the churches that Titus is now left to manage and concern himself with. The churches are immature and they need to grow up. And so what Paul has told Titus to do in this text is to teach and lead the church in gospel truth and gospel living, something that maybe you would assume, everyone should just assume and, and do. So Maybe, maybe that sounds fairly basic. So, so let me tell you a little bit about Crete, uh, where this letter is written to, and the people there, and the culture there. Uh, and you're going to see a couple of things when we lay this out. One is that Crete obviously has an issue they got to work on. That's why Paul wrote it. But you're going to find that we look a lot like Crete. Um, and that's not too big of a stretch. Crete, by the way, is a little island, 160 miles long. At some stretches, it's only five to seven miles wide, gets to 35 miles wide. So it's at that uh, southern tip of Greece. And the people that lived there had a notoriously bad rap. Now, l listen in verse 12. Look at chapter 1, verse 12, and see what they say about the people who live where Titus is now called to preach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. <laughs> what a great description, right? I love that. Um, but there is something amazing. Every time you see something like that, a description like that, which is another description of what God always does, the gospel sprouted there nonetheless. And who knows how? Maybe, maybe there's some Cretans that were at the Pentecost when, when the disciples started to preach in languages they did not know and people heard the gospel in, in ways they didn't hear before and they believed and were converted. Nonetheless, here we have these converted Cretans who were Gentiles and they brought all their baggage with them. They don't have any concept of God or what God expects. And so they bring all those bad habits and bad thoughts and lack of understanding to the church. And so... Listen how Tim Chester um, describes the environment there. It's going to blow your mind how similar it sounds to us. Living the good life of the gospel is always a challenge when we live in a wider culture that defines the good life in other ways. It is particularly hard in a culture where newspapers cannot be trusted and politicians are corrupt a harsh, selfish, racist culture in which there is a fear of crime, a culture where people are reluctant to do manual work, which is therefore left to migrant workers, a culture in which people routinely overeat. That was the culture of first century Crete. Sounds like they're reading a newspaper, right? 
And yet, of course, this description of first century Crete could just as easily be a description of 21st century Western culture. How do we live as Christians in a dishonest, harsh culture? How can we survive without adopting these attitudes? How can we live the good life in this situation? These are the questions the letter of Titus addresses. And these are the questions we need help with each day as we seek to live a gospel-changed life in a society that seeks change and finds truth in many places, but so rarely ever in the gospel. That's where we're going. I think Tim told it pretty clearly there. So let me back up and restate the situation so that we understand the reason for Paul's writings. Very simple. People are getting saved. They're coming to understand that their sin is real and they need a savior. But here's the problem, and it sounds very familiar. Their confession doesn't match their life. They declare things with their confession. But when people watch their behavior, it's kind of out of order. It's the accusation that people, many people make of the church today. They're all just a bunch of hypocrites. They say one thing and they do another. And as it could be said of Crete, it could be said of Gilbert. Therefore, chapter 1, Paul writes uh, about keeping the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves, centered in the church. And he instructs uh, Titus to raise up elders who, who encourage with that truth and then defend against the lies, because there's lots of lies trying to get into the church, other versions, other gospels, and so the elders are there to establish truth and hold the line. Chapter 2 is about ensuring that the gospel isn't just something you think about. The gospel's lived out, transformative. That's what he talks about. Chapter three is about living out the gospel for mission's sake. That when you live as Christ called you to live, your world will watch and give honor to your Father in heaven. They will see your good deeds. And they'll, they'll, God will use that in a transformative way in the world. So that's what this text is about. We've got four verses we're dealing with today. Verses one through four. Let, let's read it. We'll pray together. We'll dive in. Verse one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at a proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray together. God, I pray you'd give us ears to hear. As always, your spirit is the best preacher, so I pray that he arrives and he moves in the hearts of your people. God, don't let us treat this thing with indifference. God, I pray that we lean into it and we feel the conviction of it, that we feel the angst of it so that we can then re-examine and evaluate our affections. God, I pray... Um, that you'd be honored. Don't let me say anything you don't want me to say. I pray that your people would be encouraged. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we have uh, been in epistles before where Paul is the author, but I don't want to assume that everyone here is familiar with Paul. So let me just give you a, a brief snapshot of Paul the Apostle who was writing this to Titus. Paul's former name was Saul. He had a former job, too, and his job officially was persecutor of the church. Paul, as a Jew, saw Jesus as a problem. So he made all sorts of hell for the church. He'd bring up, he'd trump up charges against Christians, and he would put them under persecution. He was a big problem until such a day, Acts chapter 9, where the risen Lord arrived and showed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus. And although the text tells us that Paul was blinded by that experience, it says that the light of God 
shown in his heart. There was a wonderful paradox there. And God gave him a mission, a task. And that's how Paul lived his life with this as his calling. Acts 9, this is what the Lord said about Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and to kings and to the children of Israel. And that was his job, and that's exactly what Paul did. Over and over again, you pick up an epistle, you pick up a a writing of Paul, that's what he's intending to do. And he preached everywhere he went. And he saw conversions everywhere he went. And he planted churches everywhere he went. And when he was done establishing things, he would leave a leader to grow that church up and develop elders and to leave it strong. And we have three particular uh, pastoral epistles from Paul, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And we're in Titus right now. But in First in and Second Timothy, Paul is just leaving, just leaving Ephesus and he calls this really timid pastor, Timothy, that you stay here and you establish this place. Gives him some instructions. And here we have Paul leaving Crete, and he leaves Titus to manage Crete. With the expectations to grow up, to ensuring that leaders are in place, training men, and ultimately we know this 2,000 years later to leave a legacy of truth for the church today. We look at these epistles and go, they apply to us. And so God in his wisdom has has written this a long time ago. And who he writes to, the text is pretty clear in verse 4, to Titus. Now what do we know about this guy? Paul calls him a true child of the faith, which implies, I think, pretty obviously that possibly Paul was the one that pointed Titus to truth. He's probably one who maybe sat across from him and said, let me tell you about Jesus. I mean, can you imagine me and Paul? You've got the reputation of a Christian killer and suddenly you've changed colors. And my, my guess is people are curious, like, why? 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 Who are you? And so here, possibly, Titus had sat with Paul and heard the gospel, the wonderful good news that, that even a Gentile could be saved. And so here he's called a true child of the faith. What we know of Titus is that, according to Galatians 2, he was a Gentile. And also in 2 Corinthians, that Paul has used him before in a place called Corinth. Now, if you don't know anything else about Titus but the fact that Paul sent him to Corinth and to Crete, you have to assume that Titus is a tough guy. He's not passive. He's not skittish like Timothy is. He's a a strong dude because these places are difficult ministries. True conversion has happened. But, but these people have no concept of the things of God and their sin just rampant everywhere. And so, so Titus is sent to these locations to teach up and lead the way. Uh, one writer particularly talking about how you should picture Titus, he says he's like the Green Beret. He's special ops. He got dropped in for the hardest work. Toughest guy, hardest work. So just picture that about, about Titus as we go through this, all right? One of the things about the theme of this, sometimes when you pick up Paul's writings, I mean, they're, they're just dripping with theology. And I suppose depending on what chapter and verse you're on, you can go, well, this is his major thrust, or this is his major thrust, or there's lots of themes. We have no confusion on theme in Titus because Paul writes it in verse 1. And if you like to highlight and you like to draw arrows, you should write theme under this verse. This is what he says, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a theme for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. That's pretty much the theme. Okay, I want us to stop for a second before we get into this together. If you and I are not careful, we're gonna go through these next eight weeks like we're watching a movie about somebody else's life. You may go so far as to add some information to your collection of knowledge, and you go, well, that's good. I know this about Titus. I know this about Crete, and I've just kind of reaffirmed some things I already knew, but clearly I'm watching it from a distance. 
And if that is you and if that's how we approach it, uh, you will not treat it as what God intends for it to be. This is a God-ordained holy confrontation to the church. That's what it is. So I'm going to encourage you to wake up. Um, I'm going to let you in on a secret, keep it between us, but um, it, I get up so early on, on Sundays, and my brain is really kind of foggy, so I went to some of the guest services people, and I, I asked Brenda, I said, kid, you know what smelling salts are? And she goes, I think so. I mean, we used to use them all the time in wrestling, and, and she went and bought me a whole box of these, <laughs> and I do this for you. I grab these things. I don't know if you ever huffed any one of these things. But, but, and if you're a doctor or nurse, please don't come to me and tell me I'm losing brain cells. I don't care. Um, <laughs> but this wakes you up, and this just gets you there. Like right now, I've handed it to a couple people, and they don't have the courage to sniff it. But um, this is like the equivalent of Paul handing you smelling salts, spiritually. Because we are so asleep at the wheel. We are comfortable with what we know. And yet God has called us to something so much greater that your knowledge should affect your behavior. And when we get into behavior, the church has a black eye. And it's not good. So, so just picture this and picture what I'm saying. God is asking you to breathe deep. To figure out in your mind if you're willing to let your life match your confession. And that's intense and I understand that. But I don't want us to miss this point. This letter isn't just instructions to a struggling church in Crete. It is a letter to a struggling church in Gilbert. And I'm not declaring like I know something or I think we've missed it. I'm just saying the church in general has reestablished a version of Christianity that sometimes I don't think lines up with the gospel at all. So here it is it's meant to, to be uh, understood. I, I found this little uh, quote. I, I don't know how... I never investigate whether they're accurate, so please don't hold me accountable, but it's certainly intense and it feels right. Consider the great moral decline of the last generation, 50 or 60 years or so, and these telling statistics in America. The divorce rate has doubled, teen suicide has tripled, reported violent crime has quadrupled, and the prison population has quintupled. The percentage of babies born out of wedlock has risen sixfold. Couples living together out of wedlock have increased sevenfold, and gay marriage is now legalized. In this past generation, we have experienced an overwhelming increase in lawlessness, permissiveness, and selfishness, even among Christians. Moral actions that were unthinkable a few decades ago are now commonplace. Christian leaders falling, masses addicted to pornography, and unaccompanied by an exploding divorce rate have greatly factored in the rapid decrease of morals in the American church. And as the church goes, so goes the world. In fact, the results of a survey among young American adults shows that the percentage who follow biblically-based values for living has now dropped from 65% to a mere 4% since World War II. I can't believe that's true. There has never been a society in the history of mankind whose moral values have deteriorated so dramatically in such a short period of time as those of Americans in the last 50 years. And so far, it shows no sign of stopping. These statistics are eye-opening, and they serve to warn us that something is terribly wrong with our brand of Christianity. They reveal how poorly the church has communicated the true gospel to mainstream America, and thus the reasons for so much deception in our culture. Now, I don't know if 60% of that is totally accurate, but there seems to be a theme in it that rings true. So let's just sit here for a second and make a promise to each other. 
okay? That we're not gonna pretend as we go through this text like we don't have issues. We're not gonna look at this thing like, well, isn't that too bad for Crete and good for Paul to call him on that? Let's just, let's just be adults here and lean into this thing and hear the Holy Spirit because I think we have issues. Maybe subtle, maybe bigger, but there are clearly issues that we have to confront. And this letter that has been written some thousands of years ago is a letter for us. And it will affirm the great magnitude of God's great gospel for us. We talk about this all the time. It never gets old. We'll get that. We'll hear that over and over again. And we will see that this gospel will change us. It will really change us. And there will be another aspect of this thing. The world will watch and there'll be an impact, and God will use it. And that's exactly why Paul wrote this to this church that knew very little of God and very little of what he expected. And so that's how I want you to see this. Um, okay, in Paul's introductory comments here, um, it is packed full of obvious truth and gospel, and his intentions are, are very clear. His intentions is to communicate salvation and transformation, okay? And he starts with an amazing description of what salvation is. So that's what we're gonna do with our time left this morning. I got seven aspects of what Paul says our salvation is. Here's the first one. Salvation is of God by his choice. Verse one, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That phrase right there is a key phrase. It's interesting to me that Paul begins by just stating the fact of God's election. He doesn't offer any explanation whatsoever. <laughs> There's obviously large assumptions that Titus knew exactly what he was talking about, and so did the, the Cretans. They knew, okay? He assumes they understood what God has done alone for our salvation. Now, maybe we're here today, and we hear God's election, and we're a little confused, so let me just give a brief explanation so we understand this magnificent moment. Let me give you a, a kind of a simple definition. Salvation, uh, as far as it is concerned here, does not come to us by our efforts or our intelligence. Salvation is clearly and only from God for sinners. That's salvation, okay? Let me give you a little uh, explanation of how this works out. In Romans chapter three, uh, Paul gives us kind of the depth of the problem and he says, no man seeks after God. Not any man, right? In fact, in Ephesians 2, this same apostle says, here's why, because you're dead in your transgressions and sins. So if you're just following this kind of pretty straightforward argument, the text says, I can't and I don't seek after God. The text says, here's why, because I'm dead spiritually to the things of God. So you have to ask the next question, a logical question is, well, then what explains salvation? What explains my experience? There was a moment in time where I went, I want him. How did that happen? Well, here's how Paul tells us in this text how it happened. Look at verse two. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began. So watch this sequence. Again in verse three, and at a proper time manifested his word through the preaching which, with which I've been entrusted. So, so watch how this plays out. Before the ages began. God had placed his grace and promise on his people. That's what the text says. Before we ever were, he had a promise for his people, okay? And the text says real clearly from Paul that at a proper time, the Spirit of God suddenly gave us a desire that never existed before to want him, to desire him, right? To respond to the gospel. And here's what's happened. Unbeknownst to us, God made us alive. 
Before that want to, before ever that desire for him ever arrived, God had made us alive. And so when we hear the gospel, when we hear the good news that Jesus saves and I'm a sinner, guess what we do? Can't help ourselves. We respond in faith. That's what the text says about conversion that God is in charge of, okay? He had a plan and he had a people. Before time began and at the proper time, he sent his spirit to conjure an affection that never existed before. And the response to that affection is faith. And faith saves. Does that make sense? That is this election. This is how Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, so here we go. This is, this is step one. Salvation is all of God. It's his choice. Look at how Paul now backs it up by saying salvation depends on the knowledge of truth that God gives. Verse one, where he says, for the sake of faith of God's elect and their knowledge of truth. Now, some have accused Christianity of being pretty small, pretty narrow, like you're simple-minded, you don't think, it's not logical, and I would beg to differ. The, the scriptures, according to Paul, and of course to, to Christ our Savior, that salvation is very logical, if you believe what it says about you. I, I, for, for instance, for the my, for the, I'm lost at why someone would actually serve a God they didn't think was sovereign. I don't get it. Why don't I be sovereign if he's not? I mean, I don't know. Doesn't make any sense. But if God, God, if your concept of God is he is and he can do whatever he wants, if that's him and I look in the mirror, I not him, I, I got a problem, I fall short, then I start at the very beginning, the foundational principles of the gospel. He's God, I'm not, I'm a sinner. I, I got to have help. And here's the help. We talked about it last week. Our God became a man and he came to this earth not just to hang out, but on a mission, like he was coming to be the sacrifice that God himself could open up all of his wrath for all of our sin on his son so that God's expectations of righteousness could be met in Jesus. And by faith, we go free. Free. That's the gospel story. And we come and trust in Christ alone for our salvation, and the Bible calls that a free gift. And that is the truth of the gospel that Paul says, this is what you believe, and this is what changes you. Let me add the third aspect to this salvation. Salvation brings hope of eternal life, which only God can give. Again, verse two, in hope of eternal life. Now, hope, like this hope, biblical hope, isn't the kind of way we use the word hope, like I hope I get a tax return. I hope I hope I get a big one. I, it's not that kind of hope, like crossing your fingers and your toes. It's not that kind of hope. This kind of hope is a certainty. It's an absolute certainty. It's just not yet realized. Do you understand? That's how the Bible describes the hope of tomorrow, the hope of salvation, the hope of eternal life. It is, it's absolutely anchored in the truth of God and his character, and I'm going to see it some, someday. In fact, our certainty rests on the character of God, according to Paul. And look what he says in verse 2. On God who never lies. <laughs> How's that feel, church? God made a promise to you, and his character defends it. He cannot lie. He is not lying about your future. He's not lying about your eternal life. It is anchored in his character. So just get your mind around this. Paul tells us that God who never lies made a promise before there were people who even needed a promise. How about that? 
That blows your mind, right? Our hope of eternal life is anchored in, in God's promise that he made to himself and no other before our failure created the need for the promise. I love that. It had nothing to do with me. It was all about him, his glory, his honor, his creativity, what he was doing. So before I was, according to Paul, he extended that promise and he defends it with his character and it's as certain as you could pop. That's our hope. It's not fully realized. Here's a fourth thing of salvation. He says it comes through the preaching of the word in verse three. At the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Paul began this whole introduction with a declaration of why he exists. He, he says this, for the, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And some would say that the doctrine of God's election kills the heart of mission. Like, see, that explains why you aren't very carried away about missions or evangelism, because you believe this. You believe um, that God's doing the saving and no one can come unless God draws them. So just hang out and wait for God to do it all, because you don't have anything to do. Well, Excuse me, but that's a little bit silly because God doesn't just ordain the what. He ordains the how. God ordains everything. The what is that you'll be saved. The how is that he's going to use people and voices and preaching to do it, according to Paul. He does that. In other words, God has declared that the means by which people will be drawn to him is through something as ridiculous as this. When I say ridiculous, I'm not talking about like it's stupid. It, it just blows my mind that thousands of people can show up on a Sunday. And I, you might understand me, and some of you go, I don't even like him. Please give me Paul or somebody else. I'm cool with that. It's different. It's totally different. But somehow the Holy Spirit at this moment is adjusting words and messages and convictions for all these hearts. And they, he did it at 8 o'clock, and he's going to do it at 11 He's doing it in Tempe, he's doing it at Arcadia, and he's doing it at Gateway. That's what the Spirit of God does. And by the way, not just preaching pulpit, don't think just that. Every time you lean over the fence and tell your neighbor, hey, let me tell you about the joy that I have, where it comes from. Every time you sit down at lunch with a coworker, and he looks at you and says, you're a little odd. You don't do what everybody else does. And you get to tell him, Here, here's why, because I live for another. Every time you go to school and open your mouth, every time you go to school and you live a different way, every time we engage in our culture, um, we are preaching, as Paul suggests. The absurdity that God has decided not only that people will be saved, but how they will be saved. We get to tell them. And that's how it happened for me. It's how it happens for you. God has ordained both of those. It's unbelievable that God can use broken people like us, that he can use our average lives to preach a profound message. Why do we share our faith? Because God has ordained the means. He did. That's how he did it. And there's something else awesome that you've got to hang on to when you're thinking about his sovereignty in this absurdity thing called preaching. Just remember this. All around you in your life, are people who God has made a promise to in ages past. You just don't know who they are. So you do what Paul did. Just keep talking for the sake of God's elect. You just keep talking because you have no idea who the promise of God is on. And you just, here's what you know. Somebody's going to believe and you're going to witness a miracle. The miracle of new life. And it won't be your words. It won't be your timing. It won't be cleverness. It'll be God. Just like it was for you. Amen.
Okay, fifth thing. Salvation is by grace through faith. Verse 4 almost sounds like a common greeting, a throwaway sentence. To Titus, my true child in the faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus, our Christ Jesus, our Savior. He calls him a true child. It just means legitimate child. This guy's for real. Titus is my man. Common faith is Christian faith is what we confess together. Grace and peace, it's, it's always Paul's typical greeting. But grace, by the way, church, is never typical, and it's not just a greeting. Grace is the word we use to define the gospel. Amen? Nobody going with me this morning? Grace is the word we choose to define the gospel. Is it not? That's right. And opposed to all other religions and options in the world who work and try to merit their God's favor in their life by their own efforts. The gospel says, no, 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 we get God because God is good. Not because we're good or not because our efforts are good. We get God because God is good, amen? That's the gospel. And so we use words. Paul uses words like this to describe this wonderful good news. Grace and mercy and peace. Those are our words. Those are, that should be on our jersey. That's who we are in, in Christ. So grace is, and you've heard this said before, is unmerited favor. That, in essence, is what gets us into the family of God. Mercy is this unlimited compassion. That is what keeps us in the family of God. You can never get away from him. You're never going to be snatched from his hand because of his mercy in our life. And we have peace. And I don't know how else you want to define this, but let's just use this. Uh, settled hearts. Peace. I'm not anxious anymore. Well, that's what we get to enjoy in the family of God. All these words that Paul says, this is yours. This is mine in Jesus Christ. Grace, mercy, and peace. I've got two more and I've got 10 minutes. Number six, salvation makes bond servants. And, and if you want me to prepare you, this is where it's gonna get a little tense, okay? Because these are the absolutes of a gospel responder. This is one from Paul's mouth that the gospel makes bond servants, right? It's interesting to me that when Paul begins his introduction, he doesn't say, Paul, Dr. Paul of theology, the most right reverend Paul. <laughs> what does he say? Paul, a servant. Let's redefine that. Paul, a slave of God. It's what he calls himself. In fact, when Paul's defining what it looks like, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to the church in Corinth, you're not your own. You were bought out of sin slavery and you now belong to me. That's how he describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, I understand when we bring up terms like slavery, all the bad thoughts come up. I get that. It paints the picture of forced servitude and fear and misery and obviously our world has, has totally made that a bad, bad, bad thing. It is a bad, bad thing. But in Paul's mind, he is, he is thinking of it this way, that he is a willing and loving uh, servant to a king who's got nothing but his best intentions for Paul. That's how he sees it. I want to follow him because he's always right and he's always good. I want to follow him because he's kind and he's, he's loving to me and he looks out for my best interests and he guarantees my future and he gave himself for my joy. Who wouldn't want to follow that king? Who wouldn't want to be his servant? Do you see how Paul's seeing that? Through that lens. Now, I've used this illustration before and I'm certain there's a measure of corn in it. So, but I'm gonna use it anyway, all right? Because I asked Brian and Jeremy and they said go for it. So, uh, Maybe you've heard it before. And I can't even vouch for its 
you know, it's authenticity. But either way, it makes the point. You've probably heard me say or heard before the story of Abraham Lincoln who bought a slave girl, right? This slave girl's at an auction and she's furious that she's being sold as property and uh, Abraham buys this girl and as soon as she is purchased, he says, you're free. And her comment to him was, yeah, wait, what does that mean? You mean I can say whatever I want to say? And he says, yeah, you can say whatever you want to say. You, you mean I can be whatever I want to be? Yeah, you can go and be whatever you want to be. You mean I can do whatever it is I want to do? Yeah. You mean I can go wherever I want to go? Yeah, you can go anywhere you want to go. And, th- and this story, as it goes, is that this slave girl with tears in her eyes says, well, then I guess I'll go with you. I don't know if it's true, but it's clearly the heart of following Jesus. When you've been loved in a ridiculous fashion, when you've been set free, when you've received grace and mercy you didn't earn, when peace is the result, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you go with the one who's made the most of you and given you the most? That's Paul's vantage point, using servant and slave to describe himself. So I guess we should stop and ask ourselves a couple of questions. Does the love of God and the freedom that he's given, does it compel our willing servitude? I don't know that answer for you. But you better answer it. If you claim that you have Jesus, if you claim you love him, if you claim the gospel, if you understand those things, and yet your life doesn't look like loving servant, ask yourself some questions. Let me give you one more. One more facet of salvation. We're going to go back to verse one. Salvation leads to godliness. Salvation leads to godliness. That's what he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Listen to Paul again in Ephesians 2. Now, we're very familiar with the front half of this passage. Look look at how he follows it up. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Everyone goes, amen, preach it. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The actual phrase, good deeds, good works, Paul is going to use seven times on these small three chapters. The theme of Titus, in essence, is the good work reflection of the gospel received. That's his theme through all this. So I think the church needs to sit up and do some soul searching. Right? Question. Do our lives reflect the godliness that every writer in Scripture says comes with grace? Does our life match what every writer in Scripture says comes as a result of grace that we confess we believe? In other words, do our lives match our confession? Now, when I was writing this sermon, I was feeling a tension kind of grow up in my soul. So I'm just going to confess the tension and uh, tell you why, and maybe you'll understand. This entire book is a love story. It's a redemptive tale that God would love us, that God would love sinners who don't deserve it, right? That God had a plan before we were and that God fulfilled his plan by his own efforts on our behalf. This is a wonderful truth that we, we believe in. It's a redemptive story of what he did for us, not what we did. 
And scattered throughout this description of this amazing grace is uh, instructions on how we're supposed to live in light of that grace. You can't avoid it. We have to talk about it. So here's the tension. For the next seven weeks now, you're going to hear instructions from Paul to the church, what young women are supposed to do, what old women are supposed to do, what young men are supposed to do, what old men are supposed to do, and on and on and on it goes. What elders are supposed to do. We have lots of instructions here. And here's the tension. Some of you will hear the instructions and you'll think religion and morality. And that's a problem. We fight hard to defend grace and grace alone. All of salvation is all of Jesus. But here's what we also say. God doesn't save people. He doesn't transform. Okay, so, so let me just tell you why this is a tension. Because our flesh prefers law over grace. And grace is a spiritual discussion. Grace is a spiritual destination. And you have to arrive there. And the beauty of Jesus and what he's provided should compel your love and good deeds. And if you just listen to these things and make your notes and run off to do law, then you're missing the point completely. And it'll wear you out and burden you. If you understand God's grace and the wonderful truth of his gospel and you leave loving him much, well, then this is going to be a snap. But I'm just a little bit cautious that if we get you close to these absolutes, some of you are going to treat it that way. So here, I had Brian, uh, Brian Berger is pretty good at like diagrams on a whiteboard. I don't do this, but I sat down with him the other day and we were talking about how to picture this. So maybe this picture will help you understand what we're talking about. When Jesus saved you, one of the ways to describe, or the way he described what he called you to is the narrow way, Remember? Narrow is the way that leads to life. Broad is the way that leads to death and destruction. And many are on that road, but you've been called to this narrow road, this very small path. And I want you to picture that there are two hedges or two guardrails to this path. One guardrail we're going to talk about for the next seven weeks is this guardrail of instructions. You know, like, don't go there. It's not good for you. It's like my grandmother when I ran in the street. She whipped my hiney because she didn't want me to get run over. It wasn't because she was mad at me or she didn't love me. She wanted me to be alive and enjoy life, right? And some of these instructions are going to be like, don't, don't go there. You have no idea what you're doing to yourself. You don't have any idea how that's going to hurt you and you're going to rob your own joy. Don't be your own worst enemy. Instruction. Make sense? On the other side of this narrow road that keeps us on it is promises. When you fail and you fall and you drop off, you have to remember, nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. Nothing. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And that love does what? Compels me to the narrow way. Instructions because he loves me and he knows best. And his gospel that compels my heart. Make sense? And in the background, this power that God is providing called the Holy Spirit and the people of God and this love that lasts forever in the hearts of his people, well, what do you think? Man, this is doable, right? Right? No? <laughs> You're blanking out on me. You get the picture? Okay. That's what I'm praying for. I don't want to do a Bible study. I want transformation. Let's pray for that. God, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would just work in our hearts where we are um, lacking understanding, fill in the blanks. Where we're afraid of your control, I, I pray, God, you would give us affection. God, we want to be the reflection of your goodness and your gospel. 
God, I pray over time that you shape us into the image of Jesus, that you would get the glory. We pray this in his name. Amen.